Welcome to Malpractice Podcast. <laughs> yes, I am ready to get started. I'm Sydney. And I'm Jess. And this is Malpractice. Yep. The podcast that's in your ear holes. In your ear holes. And Sydney <laughs> is sick. I am sick. <laughs> this is going to be like our tea sipping ASMR episode. <laughs> so if you hate the sound of people drinking tea. Not our. I hate tea. This is Sydney's. This is Sydney's tea sipping ASMR episode. That's correct. <laughs> Jess's ASMR is normally a metal straw. A hundred percent. I am a metal straw user. Hundred percent. Yeah. And I don't even mind. I I like it. I actually um, like the compostable straws, but ooh, I don't love a compostable straw because I feel like they get. Uh, soggy. So HEB has compostable mm-hmm. straws and they don't get soggy. Oh. HEB coming through. I'm telling you, HEB. Oh, Howard E. Butts. Here's the thing about HEB. It's a local Texas chain. So if you don't live in Texas, you cannot have it. I'm so sorry about that. But also, they have just the best stuff. That's it. That's the tweet. Oh, absolutely. Dude, Eric is so into HEB that we're on one of those. Every time they're testing a new product, Eric gets that product in the mail before it, like, hits shelves. Eric, are you famous, Eric? He's H-E-B famous. That's pretty cool. For everyone who's not from Texas. That's it. Right. Our local grocery store is asking Eric to test their products, which is, like... That's big news. Objectively cool. Eric went to this, like, testers group for chips. What kind of chip label should they have? And he said it was him and, like, 10 stay-at-home moms. <laughs> this all tracks so accurately yeah. <laughs> for him. That's correct. Well, shout out to you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. And for taking care of Sydney while she's been ill. Allegedly. I'm just kidding. That's the plug he, <laughs> he threatened me <laughs> to say. Just kidding. <laughs> this is an unpaid opinion. My opinions are my own. My opinions Eric are my own, and me. I was not threatened to be here today. Thank you. Yeah, I've been sick as shit for the last... Um, Four days and Eric did help me. He's a nice man. You didn't say he took care of you though. You said he helped me. <laughs> he <coughs> is here. Yeah. No, he he took care of me. He's just Eric's taking care of me is very practical. Uh, mm-hmm. Like he'll make me food. He'll bring me hot tea. He'll go out to H E B and get me medicine. But he's not gonna like tickle scratch my arm if I'm like, help me. I'm sad. He's like, what do you need for me? Yeah, I'll go get you pho. He'll go pick up pho. But I draw the line at He's tickle, not scratch. tickle scratch, though. That's that's period. He doesn't ever, or yes, he does sometimes. But his affection is very practical, and I can appreciate it. He is acts of service. Yes. Um. So Elizabeth Holmes made the news again, and Michelle brought this to my attention. Mm-hmm. She was like, "You have to mention this," and it actually happened, I believe, last Wednesday. Yeah. Or Thursday, like right after we had put out last week's episode. Okay. Did you hear about how she requested a new trial because because of a witness that allegedly came to her house? I think you sent me this, and I read it, and I was like, I, uh, you just can't believe anything. she. I, I can't believe anything she says at this point. No! Go on. Okay, tell me about it. Okay, so I'm going to read a lot of what the CNN posted about this. So Okay, perfect. The uh, They filed with the U.S. District Court for Northern the Northern District of California. Yeah. Her uh, lawyer said that Adam Rosendorf, a former Theranos lab director who was one of the government's main witnesses, came to Elizabeth Holmes' home, 
That's I was like, wait, home's home. Yeah, that's how you say it. It's just weird. <laughs> yeah. On August 8th, asking to speak with her. Who did he ask? Ask I believe it was um her partner, Billy Evans. Yeah, it was Billy Evans okay. because Holmes, I guess, was not there. Yeah. Rosendorf didn't interact with Holmes. So Billy is saying that this is what happened and he's the one that told mm-hmm. her lawyers. Okay. In an email, apparently. Allegedly. This is what um Billy said. He said mm-hmm. I don't know why this is important, but I'm going to quote him. His shirt was untucked. His hair was messy. His voice slightly trembled. God damn. Kind of judgmental, but okay. Also dramatic. It's not like a play. Like maybe he's just messy. Maybe you paid him to be there and he's nervous. That's the opinion of me (laughs) and nobody else. Allegedly. So then he said, like, this is what Rosendorf said. When he was called as a witness, he tried to answer the questions honestly, but that the prosecutors tried to make everybody look bad. Which is their job. Right. Uh, also, it didn't. Yeah. They didn't have to work that hard because you did a lot of shady shit. <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes is a liar and a right. cheat and fraud. <laughs> he and then he also said allegedly that he felt like he had done something wrong. Okay. In his actual testimony last October, Rosendorf said that he left the company feeling skeptical about the accuracy and reliability of its tests, and he testified that it that he felt it was a question of my integrity as a physician mm-hmm. to not stay at the company and to continue to endorse test results that he didn't have faith in. Right. So then he said he came to believe that the company believed more about PR and fundraising than about patient care. I would stand by all those statements if I were him. Also, I feel like sometimes what happens is people testify against individuals that they know personally and then they feel bad about it after. Like, I almost feel like there should be some kind of counseling Mm. for people who are put on the witness stand. Like, if you told the truth, you did nothing wrong, regardless of how it affects the relationship with the person you're testifying against. I agree with that. That's actually a really good idea. Isn't it a good idea? Because I feel like you just, you finished with the trial, she was found guilty, and then you just have to move on with your life. And if you testified against her... You might feel guilty or something like that because... And you might have lost relationships, too. Right. I mean, you testify you're not consequence-free, but also you're doing the right thing. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about is... This is something that happened in August of this year. Somebody brought this to my attention that Biden had recently signed something called the Homicide Victims Family Rights Act of 2021, which was a bipartisan law that came out of some Mm -hmm. lawmakers in Texas, actually, which is interesting because it was inspired by the Austin, Texas unsolved murder case that's commonly called the yogurt shop murders. It was this horrific, brutal killing of four young women, two of whom had been working in a frozen yogurt shop in December of 1991. The case isn't actually cold. As of February of this year, investigators say they have some new DNA evidence that is bringing them closer to solving it. So hopefully we'll see movement on that front soon. But this new law basically allows or gives uh, federal rights for relatives of people who have been killed in unsolved murders so that those relatives can now take those cold cases and request federal investigators to review their case with the latest available technology. So we love to see stuff like this, especially because these cases that went unsolved from the 80s, 90s, some of them still have DNA and stuff on file that just hasn't been tested with the latest technology. Mm Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. The case itself. The case itself is absolutely insane. I wish there was a reason to cover it because it's 
I mean, I kind of don't because it's the worst thing anyone has ever heard. Yeah. If you haven't read about that case, read about it. They're getting close, I think, to solving it. And I really hope that some asshole out there who did this is just sweating bullets right now. I do have a bone to pick. Do it. With with the probably the police. Yeah. Hold on. Let me see. Investigators. Why do you put out there that you're getting close to solving something? Why alert the perpetrator? I wonder. Keep it on the DL. I don't know. I wonder if they do that to encourage someone to come forward, maybe. I don't know. And I'm sure part of it is for, like, the victim's families. But tell them. To be like, something is happening. Go tell them directly. Don't tell the fucking everyone. I mean. I think that's so dumb. This case, they're. Somebody out there can at me if I'm wrong, but I think there was a lot of mishandling of that case. And based on the fact that they're they're retesting evidence now, this happened the month after I was born. So the year of our Lord birth. <laughs> 30-year-old <laughs> evidence means that somebody messed up at the time would be my guess. Yeah. Well, I'm glad they're getting closer, but I do advise them not to announce it. Yeah, I don't know why they do that. We'll have to look into that. They're like, we're about to go and pick up John Doe. And John Doe's like, Got a blast. See you later. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know why they do that. If anyone out there knows why investigators. Please, please tell us. Please why. tell us. I would love to know. Do you want to get into this story? Yes. Another listener recommendation. This is Lynn again. Shout out to Lynn. Um, so we're going to talk about Ann Cooper Hewitt. She is, in my opinion, a hero because she took her own mother to court for having her sterilized without her knowledge or consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to get into her story. So Anne was born in 1914 in Paris, France, to a famous and wealthy New York family. Yeah. Um, Anne's parents were Peter Cooper Hewitt. Hewitt. God, I don't think this is going to be a good reading day for me. And Marion. That's how you say her name. Yeah. Mary, Marion. Yeah. I kind of like the way that they spell her name. It's kind of cute. It's literally M-A-R-Y-O-N. Yeah. I think it's Marion. So Marion Andrews Brugier. Why not? Sure. So those are her parents. And Anne was like the result of an affair. <gasps> yeah. Scandal. Peter was 20 years older than Marion. So he ends up getting divorced from his wife, married Anne's mom in 1918. They had this child, Anne, out of wedlock. But, you know, no shame. Except don't cheat, you know, but whatever. Yeah. yeah if you're doing the math on that, they she was born in 1914. They didn't get a divorce until 1918. Yeah, and then got married. So that means he was, like, hanging out with his mistress on the DL. for four years before his wife divorced him. Correct. Just just something to note. That's math. <laughs> so Peter was an electrical engineer, and he actually invented the mercury vapor lamp, the radio receiver, and a mercury rectifier. Rectifier? I don't know shit, so I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know what anything to do with mercury is, period. Yeah, that's on period. Yeah. He had a net worth of about a million in 1904 for inventing that lamp. So he had money from before. So he had the lamp and then he had the other two things. Mm -hmm. But now he has like money, money. He's like a lot of money at this point. His grandfather was an engineer who built the first steam engine in the U.S. So like he was wealthy and came from wealthy people. Yeah, right. Peter's family has a long history of doing smarty pants shit that made them a lot of money. Also, apparently, Peter's dad's grandfather, so Anne's great-grandfather, invented Jell-O. Hmm. 
So this family was collectively, I wrote, I wrote knocking down some cheddar. <laughs> I don't, I've never used cheddar to describe money before in my life. I thought you said they were making something with cheddar, too. No, they're just making money. Okay. Yeah. They were living well. Money, money. They had Lots cash. Money, money. money. Jello money. They had good money. They had steam engine money and jello money. When I read that, I thought of Gretchen Wieners from Mean Girls where she's like, I don't think my father, the inventor of toaster strudels, would be happy to hear about this. I wish that was my claim to fame. <laughs> Dad, you, you done fucked up. Where's our toaster strudel money? I could have been a toaster strudel heiress. People said that Marion, Anne's mom, provided Peter with something that his first wife didn't, which is kind of a mean thing to say, but... Newspapers called her, quote, glamorous and mysterious. I personally would call her a hustler. That's no judgment. Like, do you? But people did say she put Peter into a, a trance, which personally I don't love because it, like, takes away his agency in cheating on his wife and leaving her. But okay. Yeah. Like, fuck you, Peter, for that. That's not a nice thing to do. Right. I mean, he was hooking up with Marion for four years at least. At minimum, yeah. Before his wife divorced him. So they met, uh, Peter and Marion met at a horse show, and people said it was like love at first sight. They carried on this affair, during which time Anne was born. Peter's wife finally divorced him because, I guess, four years after your husband's mistress gives birth, that's the final straw. Got it. Whatever. Do you. <laughs> uh, beep, boop, bop. The story is that when Anne was born prematurely, her mom was basically immediately mad at her for being, like, imperfect from the very, very beginning. She called her an ugly duckling, like her own child. She would leave her in her crib for extended periods of time throughout the day. Generally, like, not great mothering material, this lady, Marion. But Anne and her father had a special bond. She had memories of him coming to her rescue and said, quote, He was one of the few precious gifts of my life. He was a tall man, very kind and gentle. I think of him walking beside me, suiting his long gait to mine, it seems to me I spent all of my happy times with him. So he would take her on these long walks around the city of Paris. They would dance together in their living room. Basically, all of her good memories are centered around time spent with her father, Peter. So He was a good dad. He was a great dad, basically. Yeah. And he really took care of her and, and doted on her. Unfortunately, Peter passed away in 1921 when Anne was just seven years old. When he died, he was worth about $4 million at the time, which is a fucking lot even now. Yeah. But today, that's like $59 million. So, again, I Ooh. say money, money. Like, good Cheddar, money. yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't say that. That's what you say. <laughs> so, I don't feel comfortable that I said that, but now I'm kind of stuck to it. So You have to say yeah. it now, yeah. So we know there's going to be tension around what's happening with this money. Yeah, correct. What's a sitch? In his last will and testament, he said that Anne would get two-thirds and Marion would get one-third. And then there's a stipulation. Unless Anne died with no hair. Air. <laughs> she died with Air. no hair. If she died with no hair, then it's fine. Then, if she died with no air or hair, then all of this money would go to her mom. So I think my speculation is that her mom, that her mom was trying to make her infertile. Yeah. And then I think she was going to have her killed. There's definitely fuckery afoot. There is a lot of fuckery. That's if just... you could take someone's, if you could sterilize your own daughter, you could do anything. Oh, yeah. She's a psycho sociopath. One of those two. The bad one. She is both. Both. Another important note while Anne's father was ill, this is the other thing that I'm going to say. 
I'm going to sprinkle this in, and this is how you know she's a sociopath. While Anne's father was ill, her mother, Marion, began allegedly seeing a 24-year-old manager of the swanky hotel that they lived in in Paris who was a baron. She would apparently host wild parties in their home where her sick husband and only child of younger than seven years old was resting. And apparently these parties got so wild that Peter's nurse tried once to kick them out, and Marion responded by firing the nurse. Yeah, well, and there's that. (laughs) So this lady's a certified gold digger, and in my opinion, a psychopath, Mm -hmm. sociopath, Mm -hmm. whatever. All the paths. All the paths. And then she tried to get Anne to give her father, while he was sick, a mysterious drink. That's what the newspapers said. I'm telling you, she is a murderer. I, yeah. She said, when the newspapers asked her about it, it was a pain reliever. Uh, But no one ever seems to have gotten to the bottom of exactly what that was. And her father had adjusted the will to make the changes that Jess was talking about earlier three weeks before he died. And after her father died, Marion would go on to marry the young baron that she had been partying with in a very short window of time. So it feels like Peter, to me... Right. Feels to me like Peter knew what was up the whole time. Especially at the end. He was probably like, absolutely never. Peter was like, I'm going to need to see my will and let's just make a quick edit here. Fuck you, Marion. <laughs> quick edit. For sure. No, I think Peter was like, oh, God. Um, So Anne had a great relationship with her dad, but her mom, absolutely not. As we can see from the very top of this story. It's very understandable. Um, also, if you were dying and your spouse... Was hooking up with a 24-year-old baron. That's sick. That's... Yeah, we don't love it. No. She, Anne, had a great relationship with her dad, but not with her mom. One, her mom called her ugly, which is... So rude. And then two, her mom, like, abused her. Right. So her mother would leave her when she was young to be cared for by others, which was not super uncommon. To have, like, a wet nurse or whatever. But she would leave her, like, in her crib all day. Yeah. After her father passed away, Anne was subjected to very strict rules, like... You stay home. You have no friends, no outside relationships. In addition, Anne has accused her mother of like a, like physically abu- abusing her, eventually showing a scar in court where she said her mom had hit her with a, a glass of wine and like left a scar. Um, yeah. So. I mean, none of this sounds no, made doesn't up sound to good. me. So the will hanging over her mom's head, plus her obviously disliking her child, made for like this kind of crazy situation. Her mom wanted the entire amount of money Mm -hmm. and had the majority. And, I mean, obviously her mom got remarried, so she needs to, like, support her new, what, 12-year-old husband? (laughs) Yeah, 24 and 12 are roughly the same thing. Same thing. And then, in addition, this this story that kept coming up in our research about Anne, like, being caught by her mother masturbating when she was young... And that, at this time period, was a sign of, like, something was off. Like, you need a lobotomy. You need, like, mental care. Like, you're unwell if a girl was caught masturbating. Yeah. So she shared that with the, her with Anne's doctor. Yeah, she shared it with her doctor, and she went to share it on with her teachers? I put a question mark there because why would you... Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. So immediately after her father died, Anne's mother sent her to an institution located in the Swiss Alps. She told the directors of the place that Anne was, quote, sex crazed and a, quote, moron. Those are like direct quotes from her mother about this child. So it gets to the point where 
everywhere she goes, Marion's lies are kind of preceding Anne so that by the time she walks into the room, rumors are flying about her and she has a lot of difficulty fitting in and making friends. And so it was kind of established very early on that Anne was not to be responsible for making her own decisions, which we're about to see takes a very stressful turn in her life. Yeah. I don't know why that that kind of thing where someone convinces everyone that you're crazy is like the scariest thing in the world to me. Uh, Absolutely. Because then you have no control over your own life and your narrative. Right. And the the harder you try to convince people that you're to be trusted, the less they trust you. Yeah. When you're like, I'm not crazy, the louder you say that, the more people think you're crazy. Yeah. It's not good. So, okay. So I want to do a little bit of a pause in like some history. At this time, if a woman was masturbating, it was seen as self-gratifying, which, duh, bitch. But in conjunction with that, that it was like, quote unquote, problematic to men for the future, especially if they were young. Because it indicated a woman who was, like, unable to be controlled. Like, domesticated. Yes. Cool. To take it a step further, there are these things called vice commissions, and they were established with funding from John D. Rockefeller to regulate the sexual activity of shop girls, factory workers, and other low-class women, Mm -hmm. which included spying on them on their walks home and and home and at work. Mm -hmm. So, quote, like, from an article, undercover investigators trailed women from their tenements... Yeah, to their jobs, taking notes on everything from their boots to their professional tasks. Yeah, and I'm sure those investigators were very cool, and none of them were creepy at all. Oh, yeah, super cool. Like, your job is to be a peeping Tom. Congratulations. Literally. This war on women would actually go on to see the U.S. government imprison about 15,000 women who were found to have syphilis between 1914 and 1918 Mm -hmm. to prove the point that you're, like, not supposed to be, what is it, like, provocative? Uh, Promiscuous? Yeah. Maybe. That's (laughs) what I meant. I think provocative's also right. Yeah, I'm fine. Who did those 15,000 women get syphilis from? That's the other question. They couldn't actually hold them on, like, actual crimes. So they were just holding them because they had tested positive for... Syphilis. ...that, like, sexually transmitted infection. Yeah. Right. So this is all gross. It's also paired with the eugenics movement. Mm -hmm. So because of the topic, I wanted to remind everyone... Yeah. uh, ...just a brief history, like, a couple bullet points on that. So in 1907, the Eugenics Education Society was founded in Britain... And that was a campaign for sterilization and marriage restrictions. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting. Yeah. This labor MP Archibald Church proposed a bill in 1931 to sterilize categories of quote unquote mental patients in parliament. Yeah. The U.S. had similar vibes. And in 1907, men, women and children who were deemed, quote, insane, idiotic, imbecile, feeble minded or epileptic were sterilized against their will and were often not told about it until after the point. Yeah. And I think one of the things to point out is that all of these terms that you can use to deem someone basically mentally unfit are defined by people who want to sterilize you. So they can use any excuse, basically. Yeah. Number two, eugenics is still a cloud that definitely hangs over modern science today. Because of how often biology was used to justify picking out the people in populations who had, like, quote-unquote, bad genes. For instance, we've talked about Charles Darwin before on this podcast. Uh, His cousin, 
is the person who started this movement in the UK. The other thing is that physicians would often record these procedures as quote-unquote voluntary. Like, they would just write on people's forms that they were voluntary because they claimed that the women who they were sterilizing were motivated by a, quote, sense of responsibility to get this procedure done, citing widespread support for sterilization, which is obviously not the case. Like, nobody was volunteering to do this. It's idiotic to say so. It's also so counter the fucking idea that they're setting that someone shouldn't be allowed to, like, make the decision to have children, but can also volunteer for this and has the responsibility mindset. Right. It doesn't fit together. It's two different puzzles. You're playing. You're trying to connect two different puzzles. Makes no sense. Yeah. And we've talked about eugenics before on this podcast, but eugenics basically translates from Greek to well-born and it's. I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. It's about, like, white superiority. That's totally what it's about. It's 100% rooted in the idea that these people thought white people having babies with anything other than, like, well-bred white people was a bad thing. Yeah. So it's literally just the most fucked up thing in the world. If you think it only happened in Nazi Germany, you're wrong. In fact, super wrong. When the Nazis started doing it, there was a eugenicist in America who said, and I quote, the Nazis are beating us at our own game. Love that. End quote. So. And (sighs) fuck that person. So in 1933, there were 33 states in the U.S. that allowed forced sterilization of women with learning disabilities, and 29 states had compulsory sterilization laws for people with genetic conditions. All legislation was repealed in the 40s, but that left a lot of time for a lot of damage to be done. Right. And while we're talking about this, this whole thing is going to take place in California, which at the time in the 30s was leading the U.S. in forced sterilizations. They were doing it left, right, and center. So we're going to get into it. Basically, from the get-go, from the jump, there was verified drama happening between these two women. But this part is where it's going to get nuts. So the year is 1934. Anne is turning 20, and she hasn't had a real birthday party since her father died, which I feel like is all you need to know about her mom. Straight to jail. Anne's turning 20. She hasn't had a real birthday party since her father died. The hotel staff where they're staying in California, they find out it's her birthday. They plan a big party. They invite a bunch of people who are Anne's age. They get a florist and a caterer and blah, blah, blah. Anne's mom finds out, freaks out, cancels the party like a total psychopath, goes off on the hotel staff. She says to them, and I quote, I'm not a popper. Basically, like, don't fuck with me. I have money. So she's fun. Life of the party. <laughs> One month later, 20-year-old Anne goes out for lunch with her mom. Why? Don't ever go out anywhere with her. They go out to lunch together at the Coronado Beachside Resort, where they have been staying outside of San Diego in California. Anne and her mother start talking about Anne becoming an adult, the type of life she might want to have in the future. She's about to become no longer a minor when she turns 21, which means that she would have access to her trust fund, number one. And that's super important, too, with the story is that she was technically a minor during all of this. A hundred percent. And there's it lines up that way for a very good reason. Yeah. So they're talking about possibilities. Her mom is like, you're not going to be a minor anymore. What do you want to do? Anne's like, I don't know. I guess I'll. I have so much money. <laughs> First of all, I'm going to get my own house. I'm filthy rich. Right. I'm, I'm richer than I, you. I'm, st- I'm cheddar everywhere. Shredded cheese all over me. <laughs> I'm going to go be a rich bitch by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like, I think I'll get married. I guess I'll have a family. Whatever. Right. Also, 
I'm sure this is exactly the type of talk that every 20-year-old wants to have with their parents. I think this was like a pretty common conversation at the time. Okay, great. If my parents had this talk with me, I would have jumped off the balcony of that. <laughs> Your hotel. mom probably did try and have this conversation with you. My mom tries to have this conversation with me to this day, and I'm like, I'm 30, leave me alone. <laughs> so they're talking, they're eating, and suddenly Anne feels a sharp pain in her stomach area. She starts kind of freaking out. She's like, something is really wrong. Her mom's like, oh, my God, let's take you to the hospital in San Francisco. Well, more specifically, let's have the chauffeur drive you to the hospital because that's how this family rolls. Cheddar. Jeez. <laughs> A doctor there who happens to be their family physician, Dr. Tilton Tillman. Who happened to be. Happens to be. Just by coincidence. Oh my God, Dr. Tillman, what are you doing here? He says, okay, you have appendicitis. Fun fact, he never performed an examination on her body. He never even looked at her abdomen, which is obviously weird to just say someone has appendicitis based on my stomach hurts. And he took her into another room where an alienist, which is the old timey word for psychologist, named Mary Scally began to ask her weird questions like, why did the pilgrims come to America? What is the longest river in the U.S.? And when was the Battle of Hastings fought? And Anne is like, what? <laughs> why? I'm fucking in pain. Probably poisoned by my psycho mother. Right. Can you help me? Yes or no? Allegedly. By me. You're not the only person <laughs> that thinks that. I think it too. And so does basically everybody involved with this case is like, her mom is As a they should. She's a, a crazy person. She also has a history of maybe allegedly poisoning people. So, like... It seems to be her favorite thing to do. So, Anne's not paying attention. She's like, get these questions out of my face. She literally said to the psychiatrist, quote, why are you asking me such asinine questions? Which is fair. And we still wait for that, for the answer there. <laughs> right. Also, I feel like the use of the word asinine would tell me that she's not crazy. I, thank you. Agreed. <laughs> I was like... She's 20, and she's like, why are you asking me such asinine questions? Honestly, fair point, Anne. So what does geography and civics have to do with Anne's appendix? And this is the point where I personally feel like I would likely become combative. Yeah. And so we're all in agreement that Anne's mom is not above poisoning her just based on her track record. So. Yeah. No, she did it. Um, I have no proof, but she absolutely did that. <laughs> she did. I'm fine with it. So, um, and, you know, whatever. It's a long time ago. She can't come and get me. <laughs> so they ask Anne to come back in four days. Why the delay? Right. <laughs> is what I would say. Appendicitis is like an emergency thing, I'm pretty sure. It is, yeah. Um, so they say, come back in four days to have your appendix removed by a different doctor, Dr. Samuel Boyd. So when I was reading this, I was like, they no fucking way said that to her with her really having like appendicitis because my mom nearly died. From being misdiagnosed. From a burst appendix, right? Yeah. Her appendix had ruptured, and the doctors kept telling her she had, like, a UTI. So they delayed her mm -hmm. because they were like, no, you have a UTI. You're Basically, they told my mom, you're old, you're having UTIs, this is how it feels. While my mom, her appendix had ruptured, and she was, like, becoming septic. Yeah. And, like, they had to rush her to two emergency surgeries. And it was, like, three days after. And she spent, like, weeks in the hospital. Yeah, she was, like, in the hospital for over a month. Yeah. No. So, absolutely not. Mm -mm. <laughs> when you have appendicitis, you go immediately to surgery. Right. So, the doctors need to go to jail. Straight to jail. But Anne didn't know that. <laughs> and I only know that because of my mom. I wouldn't know that. So, I think part of it is that appendicitis and a burst appendix are two different things. I think a burst appendix is the result of appendicitis. But apparently, you can, if you have appendicitis get sent home with antibiotics, but they wouldn't be like, here's nothing, come back in four days. But either way, it's an emergency. They just wouldn't do that. 
Even in the 1930s. Yeah. Thank you. Right. Because your fucking appendix is going to attack you. Yeah. So Anne did come back. They did the procedure. She stayed in the hospital for a couple of weeks to recover. During that time, Anne was paying attention to what was going on because it's fucking boring being in the hospital. (laughs) That's for me, not for her. It's accurate. According to her, she overheard the nursing staff saying some weird things that upset her and made her like wonder and start to put pieces together. She heard the employees of the hospital talking about her mm-hmm. and calling her the idiot patient. She also heard her ner- heard and heard a nurse. <laughs> she also heard a nurse talking to Doctor Tillman, that motherfucker who was just so randomly there. It was like their family doctor. Oh yeah, surprise! And said that Anne quote didn't suspect a thing. Mm-hmm. And she also learned that her mother and Doctor Tillman had told everybody that she was a mental case. So she was like, wait a minute. What actually happened to me? Right. And this is kind of her mom's jam, telling everyone this that is, yeah, Anne is seen it. mentally unwell. She's been doing this for years, whatever. I'm sure Anne is like, okay, sounds great. Same old, same old. But also, she goes on to say that she heard nurses call her mother brave and say that while the decision can't have been easy, what they had done to Anne must have been the right decision. And she heard her mother talk to the nurses about what a terrible mother Anne would make. Which, first of all, if that ain't the pot calling the kettle black, because you're a bad mom. Right. With And with no proof of how bad Anne could be. She's 20 years old. She seems fine. She she knows how to use the word asinine, so... Asinine. And that is all you need. Good mother material, if you ask me. So basically, Anne starts to put two and two together that way. Basically, she had a procedure. She doesn't know what it was. Her mom is telling people she would have been a terrible mother if that had been a possibility. Mm -hmm. So she realizes she didn't just have an appendectomy, if that, right? But also a a (laughs) salpingectomy. That was great. Oh, my God. I'm sorry I gave you that word, but you did great. Science words. That's okay. (laughs) Um, Which removes a woman's fallopian tubes to prevent pregnancies. Right. So we've talked about this already. In the 30s, sterilization was not a shock. Like, we've covered this. We talked about it earlier. Mm -hmm. This is actually no different. There um, is a loss of power and lack of trust, rightfully so, especially because of Anne's age. Right. Because she was technically a minor. This is why her mom was able to create this facade mm-hmm. and, like, have this procedure done without her consent. And just again, it is estimated that over 60,000 people were sterilized during this time period. And laws were not put in place to, like, stop forced sterilization until 1942. So technically, like, her mother wasn't even breaking the law. Right. As long as she could prove that Anne fell into one of those categories. Right. Of being, like, unfit mentally. Yes. And they get to decide that. So. Yes. So here's the situation. Anne goes home after being released from the hospital. Her mom takes away her phone, her reading lamp, all of the comforts out of her room and basically banished her there into a prison. Yeah. She wasn't allowed to talk to anyone or even read the newspaper. Her meals were delivered to her door where they would be dropped off by a maid and then they would lock her back into her room. So at this point, Anne is basically like, fuck this noise. So she begins to suspect that the timing of all this is mighty convenient. Her mother had had her sterilized right before she turned 21 and gained access to the two-thirds of her father's money that had been left to her in his will. So Anne, I don't know how she did this without a phone, she hires an attorney 
They hold a press conference in 1936, and she says publicly, I'm suing my mom and these doctors for $500,000. And people are shocked. $500,000 is a lot of money now, but it was a crazy amount of money then. And the public is thinking, well, Anne already has money. Why is she doing this? So it catches a lot of attention because... This is really sad to say, but Anne is not the typical case of forced sterilization because usually... Especially at the time period. At that time period, it was usually poor, poor women uh, and men. I'm not going to say it just happened to women for sure, but poor, poor people. Who were like put in asylums. Right. Usually it was an institution. So this was somebody who was very wealthy that this happened to in a private hospital. It was an unexpected use of forced sterilization in a way that people had not seen it before. Mm -hmm. So in this press conference, she accused her mom of bribing the two doctors to perform the surgery without her knowledge. She also claimed that the motivation was to ensure she would die without an heir and that her mom would get her money. Her mom responded by saying that she had been given a mental fitness test, which is why the psychiatrist was asking her stupid questions about when the War of Hastings was fought. I don't even know what that is. I don't either. Wouldn't pass a fitness test, I guess. Certainly not. And she had been deemed, quote, deficient. And that made the forced sterilization completely justified. How fucked up as a mom to be like, well, she's, this is who she is. So it's not a big deal. I, I, this is why I think she's a sociopath. Just the lack of empathy that you would have to have for your own child. I mean, she tried to poison her husband, too, so. She's a lunatic, yeah. Um, at the press conference, one reporter asks Anne if she thought her mother also planned to kill her, since that was part of the stipulations in the will. Is like, Anne has to die. Yes, we do believe this, reporter. We definitely believe this. Her attorney handled it in a very tactful way. Her attorney answered the question and was basically like, well, I think her mother underestimated how long Anne plans to survive or something like that. But basically, the long and short of it is yes. Mm -hmm. Anne thinks her mom was going to kill her, I think. So this was, she went, went to sue her mom and the doctors in a civil case. Yes. Okay. Originally. And then. So she went after her. She, yes, you're correct. They She went after them civilly. The allegations made in her statements to the press were pretty explosive, which is fair. They immediately caught the attention of San Francisco District Attorney Matthew Brady, so he and his colleagues decided to press charges against her mother, criminal charges. Agreed. Without involving Anne in the investigation, because this is a quote from him, the poor woman is dealing with enough as it is. Yeah. I'm sure Anne was like, I want money. <laughs> I agree, but I'm also like, give her the option. Because again... You're taking it's like you're you're making a decision for someone who is in the middle of a court case about having decisions That's made true. for her. Maybe just like give her some agency. I don't know. So her mom and the doctors were charged with mayhem, which is the act of unlawfully removing a part of a body resulting in the disfigurement or uselessness, mm -hmm. which is a, I, I mean, if you're going to be charged with something, be charged with mayhem. mayhem. That's like a yeah. crazy cool name of the charge. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like just ruckus. Yeah. It's like, like, whoa. I mean, which is essentially like the vibe. Yeah. You're you're taking away someone's body part. Yeah. Um, yeah. Agreed. So those sterilization was not uncommon. It was only legally allowed for those who are, who are verified to be suffering from like these categories of mental illness. Mm -hmm. So Anne's lawyer was like, Anne is not feeble-minded or mentally ill. Like, absolutely not. So obviously that was a lie. 
Mm-hmm. And they also produced evidence that Anne's mother bribed the doctors with that $9,000 each to operate on her daughter. And then um, that medical records were altered to justify the procedure. Yeah. So a little more about that. That $9,000 apparently came from Anne's trust fund, which, what How a bitch. How did she get access to her trust fund? Because she was the caretaker until Anne turned 21. Why didn't she use her own fucking money? Because she's a bitch. Oh, yeah. We, we've established, yeah, you're right. She's like, I'm going to make you pay for your own fallopian tube removal because I'm such an asshole. <laughs> so part of what came in came up in court to support the idea that this could not have been a normal ac- appendectomy is that normally that procedure would only cost a few hundred dollars each for the doctors involved. So what was that full sum of money actually for? Like, why pay $9,000 when the going rate is like a couple hundred bucks? And her mother actually used the term feeble-minded in her own defense, which I'm putting feeble-minded in quotes because aside from being rude as fuck, is ascribed to a wide array of different conditions, which include, we talked about this earlier, but epilepsy, intellectual deficiencies, but also sexual deviance. So basically, whatever they wanted it to mean, it could mean. Mm-hmm. Her mom was using the term to mean that she was promiscuous, meaning that she could not be a fit mother in the eyes of her unfit mother. Right. Right. So the first question that the prosecutors have to answer in order for there to be a legal justification for this whole court case is, is there or was there a legal justification for her to be sterilized based on her mental status? Like, is this girl in this category that makes this possible what i will give to her stupid mom is the long game because she started dropping yeah hints and statements since she was very young to support this so i think yeah she's been planning this shit for a long time i think you're right i you could say whatever you want about this woman she's an asshole for sure almost definitely a sociopath but she's a conniving bitch oh yeah if she's been dropping hints about this for years, she had a plan this whole time. I think she knew that Anne, as her dad's only child, was like the apple of his eye. He was going to take care of her in his will. But especially if he knew that the mom didn't like Anne, he was going to make sure that Anne was taken care of. So I think from the beginning, when her dad died, she was like, I'm going to discredit this girl because I'm going to take whatever he leaves for her. Mm-hmm. Like without knowing, but why would he leave her? I would. Well, I mean, it is her mom, so I bet it would be hard to be like, and she needs to go live with anybody else. Thank you and good day. Yeah, like make a lawyer her the trustee because it's his wife. I guess he trusted her. I don't know. Maybe she didn't come out, but maybe she didn't come out as crazy until after he died. You no, know, from birth she called her daughter ugly duckling. Yeah, that's true. But also, I'm betting that she kept that shit pretty tight until he died, and then she was like, let it out. So I read something that said that he was the only one to take her out of her crib. So I bet he knew. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was just blinded because he was, like, so in love with her. Yeah, people did say that she had, like, a spell over him. So maybe it was, like, everybody else knew that she was an asshole except him. Yeah. Maybe that's what they meant by, like, a spell. So also, uh, back to the story now that we've just really... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sidebar nation. <laughs> Winning on yeah. her mom again. Apparently, the two doctors had gotten that one, you know, other doctor to say that Anne was ill. But then they, another witness doctor, there's a lot of doctors here, um, in court said the following. 
Quote, she writes fluently in French and can converse in Italian. She has read books on Shakespeare, French history, Napoleon Bonaparte, Marie Antoinette, King Lear, Dante's Inferno, and the works of Charles Dickens. Like, she's not mentally ill at all. She's fine. She's smart. Yeah. Yeah. She's very smart. She's actually really smart. What is the problem with you? Exactly. Also, when her lawyers asked the nurses who cared for Anne before and after her procedure to testify that she was not, in fact, what her mother claimed she was, one of them named Grace Wilkins got a letter from Marion that said she, quote, had better not talk. Another one said she received a phone call threatening that they would kill her if she testified. Because she definitely will kill you. Oh, she will absolutely. (laughs) She has no qualms. She'll slip something in your pea soup at lunch fast. Fast. You won't even see it coming. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so she, this one nurse goes on to testify and she says, quote, Half an hour after I saw the girl for the first time, I knew that there was no insane, that this was no insane person. I observed three months of abuse by her mother. She was kept in pajamas upstairs. Her letters were censored. So were her telephone calls. In February of 1936, an ambulance was called to the Plaza Hotel in New York City, where a guest by the name of Mrs. Jane Merritt had been found upstairs unconscious in her room. It appeared that the woman had overdosed on sleeping pills. It was then that they found out that this was Anne's mother who was facing criminal charges in California. Anne's mom's doctor said that the patient's condition was too fragile for her to travel, so the case would have to proceed without her, and so it did. She just wasn't in attendance (laughs) because she tried to take her own life. Because you got found out. Which reads of guilty to me, but what do I know? Yeah. So Anne's mom, now hiding in New York, and the doctors, faced up to 14 years in prison if they were found guilty of the crime. In court, Anne discussed the abuse she endured by her mother, the cigarette burns Mm -hmm. on um, on her body, as well as the wine scar from the glass on her arm. Anne's attorney made a point to emphasize that Anne's mother was known in Europe as the greatest woman gambler in the world and that she was a four-time divorcee. Oof. Oof. <laughs> I mean, no shame on that piece, but it does not sound good when I say it out loud. I'm like, <laughs> four's a lot. Four's a lot, but you know, on but, that but one you? singular thing, you do you to find, you know, your love. If you're anyone but Marion, do you? Yeah, every, uh, uh, Correct. Uh, but knowing what I know about how she likes to try and murder people, allegedly, like, probably not a good vibe. Yeah. In court, um, and when speaking with reporters, he referred to her by all her married names. Um, so he would say Miss Mary, her names. Okay. Miss Marion Bruyere Denning Hewitt de Erlinger McCarter. So he would just say the whole thing. Yeah. That that is shade. <laughs> it's so shady. So they basically try to shift the focus off of the unfitness argument from Anne to her actual mom saying, Anne's obviously not the problem, but let me just crucify her character of the of her mom. That's basically what he did. So after days of testimony, the jury was like stumped on the um criminal case. Mm-hmm. Um some siding with Anne, some siding with um, the precedent and her mom. So the judge ended up dismissing the case saying, this is a useless expenditure of public funds. Bitch, if you had been sterilized, maybe you wouldn't say that. Mm, correct. The pros- That's what I said, not he. he <laughs> That's not himself. a quote, yeah. <laughs> the prosecution, I always do that, and then I'm like, wait, that may be confusing to people. <laughs> no, they're fine. The prosecution has come 
completely failed to make a case against the defendants. Disagree. Um, the evidence is simply not meritorious enough to be given to a jury. And according to the judge, sterilization in California was not a crime. Therefore, mayhem had not been committed and there is no conspiracy to commit it. The judge th then also said that the timing of the sterilization before Anne was 21, because her mother could consent to the procedure was like an indicator that it was also legal. Right. Um, and they settled out of court civilly for the sum of $150,000. Yeah. Even with the legal issues out of the way, Anne's mother, Marion, never fully recovered from the attempt to take her own life. Three years later, her mom had a cerebral hemorrhage and died. Apparently, very few people attended her funeral, although one of the people in attendance was Anne, who would go on to be married five times herself. Again, you do you, girl. Go off. Marry whoever you want to marry. Uh, Anne ended up being diagnosed with cancer at the age of 40 and passed away. As she wept at her mother's graveside, Anne suggested to a reporter that she, quote, that she was, if not a fit mother, at least a forgiving daughter. Literally could not be me. I would not be there. <laughs> they, the reporter would have to talk to me while I was peeing on her grave. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. I couldn't think of anything. Dancing. I'll say dancing. The reporter would have to talk to me <laughs> from my vantage point dancing on her grave. Like the other one better. It's <laughs> 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 really good. And then I thought it was too gross. <laughs> Cut all of this out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's what we know about that. That's all we got. <laughs> that's the unfortunate... A super sad story of Ann Cooper Hewitt. But you know what? I'm so excited for, to share this because she took her mom to court and that takes balls. It really does take balls. And Ann, I think, really deserves to have her story told. If you want to be cool like Lynn and send us a recommendation, you can do that. DM us on Instagram or email us at malpracticepodcast at gmail.com. A couple of people have made recommendations by commenting on our YouTube channel. Love that. You can also leave us a review wherever you like to listen. I swear to you that we actually read the reviews and we really like hearing your feedback. So don't forget to do that. Sydney deadass will screenshot them to me. <laughs> Every single time. And be like, look at this. Every time we get a new review, I screenshot it, I send it to Jess, and then we collectively either enjoy it or talk shit about you if it's a bad review. And you know what? And I'll continue doing it. <laughs> know that that's a possibility. If you're going to leave a review and you leave a bad one, know that we're going to talk shit about you. And that's okay. We're going to judge you. It's true. The judgment is real. Thanks for listening. We hope you like this episode. And don't forget, malpractice, malpractice makes, makes perfect. perfect.